Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Anna V. Q. Ross. Anna V. Q. Ross is the author of Flutter Kick, winner of the 2020 Benjamin Saltman Poetry Award and the 2023 Julia Ward Howe Award in Poetry. If a Storm, winner of the Robert, Dana, and Hinga Prize, and the chapbooks Figuring and Hawk Weather. A Fulbright Scholar, Massachusetts Cult- Cultural Council Fellow, and Poetry Editor for Salamander, her work appears in the Kenyon Review, Harvard Review, the Missouri Review, The Nation, and elsewhere. Anna teaches at Tufts University and through the Emerson Prison Initiative, and lives with her family in Dorchester, Massachusetts, where she raises chickens. Find her at AnnaVQRoss.com. Hello and welcome, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's so great to have you here and to read from your book, Flutter Kick, um, from Red Hand Press. We'd love to hear um, a poem from your book. Okay. Um, We were talking about these self-portraits earlier, so I'm going to start with one of those. The first self-portrait in the book, um, it's called Self-Portrait as Girl. You were always looking for balloons, or not balloons themselves, but the feeling that they might appear at any moment. You looked for roads where there should not be roads, checking them off, inside yourself. In the absence of dogs, you were brave about dogs. You felt you should love horses, but preferred trees, the way they moved without leaving. Once you twisted an apple stem to learn the initials of the man you would marry. Once you held your breath long enough to swim the pool's width fastest of all each blue-green second marking the length of you, then gave your apple prize away. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. I'm so excited that you have so many self-portrait poems um, throughout your book. I always feel like there's like the close reading of the poems that happens when you're reading the book. And then there's this reading when you come away and you like look back at the index and you're able to see, like you get to pan out from what you've been very close to and see the kind of the shape of the book and and how the poem, a type of poem might weave throughout the manuscript. And and certainly um, in Flutter Kick, that's your self-portrait poems. And I read um, a like a co-poet interview you did with Nicole Callahan um, mm-hmm. with The Critical Flame, where you both talked about your new books. And you talked about your self-portrait poems as a kind of a spine for the book, because they seem to mirror or introduce themes that other poems expanded on. They acted a bit like magnets for each of the sections. And I loved those two wildly different metaphors, like a spine and then like a magnet, like they're doing such <laughs> totally different work. And one has movement and one enables movement, but it's about structure. And um, I was just like, oh, we need to all think of multiple metaphors for like how a particular kind of poem functions in a book. Like that's just so helpful. Mm. Um, 
but I mentioned before we started talking that your self-portrait poems, particularly for me, um, I mean, I think as genderqueer, but also just as a writer, they opened up um, the speaker's self in a way to other, like this is other, even like self-portrait as a girl, that it could have been otherwise. Um, and it was like a defamiliarizing um, in a way that I don't always feel that in a self-portrait poem. Like sometimes it's it's so hard to put this into words and I'm hoping you have something more intelligent than I do to say about it, but <laughs> just the way you have like, you know, I'll just read a few of, you know, I'll be specific about it. Um, self-portrait as smaller moon, self-portrait with alternate ending, self-portrait as tree line, which I adore, um, self-portrait as invasive species, like these different lenses for, for just othering the self in a way to know the self better. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. Like the other, so I think I started writing these, um, because I did feel very othered from myself. Um, and I, these were the first poems that I wrote, um, after my son was born, my younger child and my kids are three years apart. So, um, he was, yeah, he was little and, um, and I hadn't really, I'd finished my first book, um, pretty much before my daughter was born. And then it came out shortly after she was born. And, um, and then I had another child and I was really struggling to sort of figure out, you know, who I was anymore, like personally who I was, um, who I, how I was going to continue as a writer. Um, and also who I was in the world because, um, you know, I started to notice how differently I was viewed. <laughs> um, and some of that was nice. Like, um, I remember, uh, we moved, I, I live in Dorchester, uh, which is a neighborhood in, in Boston. Um, it's sort of like the Bronx of Boston, maybe. Um, it's a neighborhood that has a huge diversity of different people from different countries, different places. It's kind of the traditional immigrant neighborhood of the city. Um, so many languages, just like just on my street, you know, um, like Haitian Creole, um, Spanish, uh, Senegalese, like, you know, so, um, and, and I definitely felt like once I was walking around visibly pregnant, my neighbors sort of like started to like be more interested in accepting me into the community because they saw me as like sort of making a commitment to be there with a, with a kid, you know? Um, so that was interesting. Um, but then there were other ways where I felt really kind of reduced, um, uh, by the way, not by motherhood itself, which I found quite expanding and expansive. Um, but I, but the way that other folks seemed to see me <laughs> was, was disappointing, you know, that, you know, that they didn't look at me anymore. They looked at my children um, and, you know, they didn't bother really to know my name. They just knew their names. And, um, 
you know, and I started to feel quite othered from who I had been before them and, and really like from who I thought of myself as in society, you know, I thought of myself as like, you know, a person with agency and ideas and, you know, maybe something to offer. (laughs) And, and then it turned out that many people thought I had already offered children and that was enough. Um, so yeah, so, so I think the self-portraits, um, were a way of sort of investigating that othering and otherness, um, and just maybe leaning into it, like saying, okay, I'm not going to be me. I'm going to be a moon (laughs) for a little while and see what that is, you know, um, that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to consider what girlhood is. And and in that poem that I just read, I mean, there are elements both of my own girlhood and my daughter um, and, you know, and, and like, what is this funny, like prescribed role, right? I mean, there that there's a line about twisting the apple stem and I have a picture or my mom does of me doing that as like a eight-year-old or something and you know and I I remember it you know like why as an eight-year-old was I concerned about who Mm -hmm. I was going to (laughs) marry like why was I thinking about that you know Mm -hmm. um but that was just you know so fortunately my daughter has not done that um (laughs) I don't think anyway um but yeah I so I I felt like I needed to like step away a little bit in order to see myself again. And that's really the role those self-portrait poems played for me. Um, They also played a really important role of like keeping me going as a writer, like at a time when I didn't have a whole lot of spare, you know, energy, breath. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I didn't have time to collect myself, you know, and so I remember I found that if I put self-portrait at the top of the page, then I could like continue. Um, And I actually have a a book, a a chat book that's like a collection of more than even are in this Mm -hmm. in um, in Flutterkick um, that came out prior to that with with um, Bull City Press. It's called Figuring. Actually, here it is. I'll just. Um, And this is a lot of a lot of self-portraits. And then the self-portraits started to evolve a little. And um, some of them turned into reports, which for me felt like the world answering this self-portrait questing voice. Um, But it was a really important moment for me to sort of try and look again, you know, try and and look at at what it means to... um, be a self, yeah. you know, yeah. in our world. I love that. Do you, you know, um, Iris Murdoch's MND, that story? No, I don't. Oh, it's just, she has the line. Um, it's like, for thinking about another person who's difficult or, um, and you realize you've been unjust towards them and might need to show them more grace and, and the, the kind of hinge line for this in the story, which is in her philosophy essays, um, it's in the sovereignty of good set. Um, the line is let me look again. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that there's so much in terms of attention, like our attention can be incorrect. Our attention can be focused, not in the right way. Even when we were like, I've been looking, I've been looking. So the yeah. like, let me look again is this admission of like vulnerability and failability. And, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's really beautiful. 
And there I've, yeah. I've brought Iris Murdoch in so we can check Iris Murdoch off my, <laughs> I will like always talk about <laughs> I want to read that Murdoch. story now. Will you send me an email with yeah, the title? So yeah, I, <laughs> I, know, I know it's got like excerpted. It just it definitely, it lives in my head. It's not rent-free. I think it pays me. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> um, well, so much of writing is about that act of looking, you know, letting oneself look. Mm-hmm. Um, just like take a moment to really mm-hmm. focus. Um, yeah, we think of it as words, but really yeah. we're, we're taking what we see and putting it down or what we yeah. feel. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Of looking that we can do. Exactly. Um, and I like Murdoch because she opens up like she, the idea of vision is really important to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just attention. And I think, um, it's nice to like not root attention just in any one um, sense or that mm-hmm. it can be like every, everything about your body attends. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about your poem journey mm-hmm. too, because um, you know, the lines, I could say it was like being born, but who remembers that? <laughs> um, I'm a Miltonist by training. And so of course, for me, that reproduces, <laughs> this is so specific, <laughs> Lucifer's heresy in paradise lost, which is self-begot self-made, right? right? Because he's like, who remembers the time of your birth? Who remembers that? I don't remember God making me. Um, so this is this amazing heresy. And of course, Milton's villain is very productive and like incredible for us to think about. Um, so the, the self-making and that, that there's so much in our life that is self-making. And so that's one of the I mean, Stanley Fish would say I'm surprised by sin, but that's like, you know, motivations um, of I remember when I first read um, Paradise Lost, really rooting for Satan. Like, I really liked him. Yeah. (laughs) It was much more interesting. He made really good arguments, too. I mean, that's a great that's a great point. (laughs) And he experiences shame in the mm. garden watching Eve. And I think that's a very, very interesting. Um, he's just kind of infinitely interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's self-making that that's something, um, that it's work we do, especially as artists, that it's important work that it can be assigned to someone else. It can be given to a church. It can be given to a family. Like someone else can be like, no, this is yourself. This is who right. you are. Um, but in the end it's you who has to do that mm-hmm. work. Um, do you have a favorite, um, I'm just curious, um, do you have a favorite self-portrait in this book in Flutter Kick? Huh. I'm not sure. Um, well, I do, I do like self-portrait at Treeline, although it's a little, that one feels like a little dangerous to me still. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then there's also a self-portrait as Fox in Daylight, Oh yeah. Um, so good. Yeah. Maybe I, I could read that one. Oh, I'd uh, love that. I'd also, um, can I request it at some point, um, that you read almost a mothering as well? Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. It's funny. Um, you know, looking through one's book, especially at, you know, it's been out for a little while and I've read through it in different ways in different places. And like, I know all the stories behind all of these poems. And I also know when I wrote them in relation to others, you know, like self-portrait as Fox and Daylight was a, because it was the self-portrait 
series. It's pretty pretty early in the book, but then almost a mothering is is quite a bit later. But then it's interesting to hear how they kind of talk to each other, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that I, until putting them into a book together, didn't realize. Of course, yeah. that's you know that's always what happens with a book, but um, it's still revelatory. Yeah. Um, yeah, this one self-portrait as fox in daylight. I I I wrote this after I was at um Sewanee Writers Conference and there was a lot of construction going on in the um they were rebuilding like there was a big hotel that they were building on campus and it seemed to have disturbed a lot of the local wildlife because Sewanee sort of in an area where there's a lot of woods and things. It's a beautiful part of Tennessee. Um, And there was a fox that kept showing up. Like, and foxes aren't supposed to be around during the day, but I think perhaps its den had been disturbed by all of the digging up. And so it kept showing up and like trotting past where we were all eating dinner in the dining hall and be like, the fox, the fox is here. And then we'd see it spotted on the road somewhere. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I thought, okay, here's another out of place mm. creature, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, so I wrote this when I got back from that conference. Self-portrait as fox in daylight. I should be darkness, twitch of haunch and rumor among brush. Should skulk and den where my blue-eyed kits burrow themselves in sleep, should not be walking this road's tar parade, its swindling itch of light. I trouble a nearby scent of mouse or vole, then sit and stretch, then rise to trot the double lines, my tail a flare to puzzled honks and rearview stares. I shuffle on, the heat offense I follow. How to explain? I've been unmasked by sun, its bitter yellow reach that pins me sure as want or stone to this bald stage. I've lost the trick of you, my shade. Should I read the other one now, like so we can hear them together, or do you want to yes. just talk about that one? Yeah, I love okay. that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, um, I wrote almost a mothering, also and not at home. I was at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, um, another be- beautiful bucolic country place. Where is it? Towards the beginning, I know. Both of these poems allowed me to research animals, which is also a fun thing. (laughs) Um, Almost a mothering. Consider reduction. The five turkey vultures making sleek, dark circles above the field this morning. They hunt by smell, I read, but hunt isn't right. Instead, they gather from the air some wind-translated sign of carcass. No punishment, nothing inflicted. The angle of their plunge, a means to rewind, body to material, almost a mothering. Each afternoon, when the freight train pushes its high whine through the culvert near the field, 
I remember I was named for the woman in that famous Russian novel who tossed herself from the station platform as the engine pulled in. No revising that action. She was a mother too. At 12, I read it and thought her a fool. Now I see how a life buckles. A horse whose head has been yanked too often takes command how it can. The vultures land in the lichened branches of a nearby tree to claim the awful of this neighborhood. Red-crowned, they preen with their hooked beaks, accepting every stain. Thank you. Yeah, there's just so much going on with um, visibility and um, acknowledgement and acceptance and um, accepting every stain, I think, is such a powerful um, close for almost a mothering. And, you know, because there's that move, right, when poets will close on an image mm. because of the way it 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 does like resist closure and it just opens onto that image. Yeah. Um, but then there's the addition of like the speakers, the speaker is commenting on that. So I think the speaker is very present um, in that image making it instead of like a withdrawal or a stepping back and then open yeah. to like sheer image. But yeah, I, I think earlier on in my writing life, I would often end with an image that just sort of, seemed to me kind of summary of the poem somehow, or I hoped mm. it was. <laughs> um, and um, I remember when I was going back and editing my first book um, after it was accepted for publication, finding all of these moments where I was like, what did I really mean? <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, the idea of stain, I mean, you know, so much of motherhood well there's the you know the the everyday staining of motherhood right but then that it becomes um evidence of stain like human stain um of like you know if you want to get really biblical and we're all even if we don't believe in it as i don't but we're all very touched by by these um judeo-christian mythologies of 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 women you know sort of bringing stain and sin into the world um and children being evidence of that and and i feel like you know so much of motherhood for me or has been kind of finding a way to just say you know this is this is who i am this is who my kids are this is you know um yeah. <laughs> You know, there's no perfecting this. There's no right way to do it. Um, yeah. And I think being able to write about yourself and even like, you know, do a speaker to kind of slip into, I find like the vulture a really powerful image, like that it's like, I mean, I have a poem with a vulture, like kind of identifying with the vulture and just being like, yeah. Yeah, I, I contain unloveliness. I contain scavenger and, and like that there's this, I think it's such a powerful um, kind of bird um, to reference. And I think, I mean, I've been, <laughs> confession, I have been like binging Sarah J. Mass's fantasy books lately. And <laughs> um, 
her women characters are so powerful because I think she really gets like they feel genderqueer to me in the way that they're allowed to be masculine. They're allowed to be strong. They're allowed to be ferocious and mean and revengeful. And like they just mm-hmm. get to be all those things and they don't have to they don't sit around beating themselves up because they don't seem like a gentle mother or like, yeah, and I'm right totally endorse gentle parenting but uh, <laughs> but like yeah. you know that there's something that things that it's more lawful for us to be in terms of society um mm-hmm. and so yeah, like, I love them like I mean they're just they're so like sort of self like righteously like ungainly and kind of ugly and then but then when they're flying they're so beautiful mm-hmm. this sort of swirling shape that they make yeah. and um and and I mean the, the connotation of vulture is so is nasty in our culture you know somebody who picks over somebody else's or steals from somebody mm-hmm. else but then really they're doing this incredibly important work of like kind of cleaning up <laughs> after everybody else and like returning energy to the earth and yeah. you know I mean yeah I love that I love that um sort of way of I, I you know if I can find a point in nature that disproves all this human silliness I'm I'm there for it <laughs> um I went down a, a total rabbit hole on on vultures when I was there just because they were always in the air yeah they're but really if, cool. Know, if there weren't any around, we'd really be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're an old world bird too. Like they're so old. Mm, yeah. Um, and I mean, if ever there was an animal for a poet, um, whether it's the vulture or the fox, right? Like the slies, <laughs> nocturnal hunt. Like to me, those mm-hmm. animals are amazing. Um, and also, I mean, I think of Renard the fox in terms of French fairy tales and, and oh, Renard right. also being sure, present. Yeah. And, you're, and yeah. I wanted to ask with your fox poem, wait, have you seen Fleabag? You've seen Fleabag. I have. I love Fleabag. Oh with God. the fox, right? right. The fox right. keeps appearing. Yes. Um, yes. Have you read about that fox in terms of like what it represents or? No, I didn't investigate. I just kind of went with it. Well, <laughs> what are the theories? <laughs> so, I mean, right. It's an old, it's like a medieval bestiary animal, right. That there are all these readings on. Um, and there are oh. theories that when it shows up, it's when um, like the priest is, is encountering like lust or desire oh, and okay. it upsets and disturbs him. Right. And that's when the Fox appears. Um, and I think <laughs> that's just amazing. Like, I love that. <laughs> So when she says at the very end, he went that way and the fox trots off. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so good. Wow. So good. Yeah. Um, yeah. The animal work. Um, yeah, yeah, I have other foxes in the book that I kind of, I well, I have the All Hallows poem, which has, which, um, my daughter was dressed up as a fox. She asked to dress up as a yes. fox. Three. Yes. Yeah. I love that you had that because, and you talk about her Halloween costume because I, my children are also three years apart. And at one point, the old, back when I could choose their costumes, haha, for them. Well, I mean, they wanted to be it, but you know, they, I, I go towards cute costumes. I wasn't dressing them like death school, like they want to go as now. Um, <laughs> but the older one was a fox and the toddler who, of course, I got to choose their costume entirely was a little chicken. 
and they were so oh. cute together. <laughs> I was just like, you know, it was so cute. I was, had my way that year. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, those were those were the good easy years in some ways. <laughs> um, but I thought that, and I said it in the poem that, like, it was really like we're talking about. I really think that she wanted to be a fox because she was interested in being like, that was the scariest thing that she could think of. That's amazing. You know, yeah. uh, because like you say, foxes are often like they're in these fairy tales as these kind of, um, I don't know, ambiguous characters. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're not the wolf. Right. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but you're never sure where you are with, or, you know, with yeah. a fox. Yeah. Um, and I think she really, she wanted to be that. You know, she wanted to figure that out and and sort of inhabit it, um, which was exciting. And we'd been in in Ireland that summer and there had been a fox, like the the story in the poem about digging up the moles in my granny's garden is true. So she kind of like she had this idea Mm of foxes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And when you keep chickens, like the chickens come out in your book that you you keep Mm. hens and. I mean, that just gives you a whole nother perspective on predation and predators and hawks and snakes and foxes, like everything. Like Mm -hmm. I have a line in a poem where it's like all the animals wanted in, like just (laughs) they know you have something and they want it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just very, it's a powerful lesson, like learning that. Um, Mm -hmm. So right before we started talking I was telling you that I'm currently in my study and I've given half of it to my older child to have as their half mm-hmm. of their room. And that like the decor on the walls, that's theirs now. <laughs> and I'm like moving my paintings around and you started telling me, and that made me feel so good. <laughs> it wasn't just me <laughs> that you'd also given up part of your study um, to one of your children um, at one point. And um, of course, because of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, which I think is mm-hmm. very important, um, but it brought that up for me, the sharing of the study space um, and the way particularly parents are asked to be so porous um, and kind of open to the world, open to giving away what's yours, open to, like, I just feel like every day I'm asked to be more of a sponge in some ways. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but I would love to hear your thoughts on sharing spaces and kind of practical writer's life and where do you write where do you make a time and space for yourself Mm -hmm. in the midst of it all well so my kids are a little bit older now they're 13 and 16 um so they're sort of more reliably out of the house they have their own things that they're doing um but uh when they were younger i you know it was I can't, you know, I, I, I can't even remember some of the ways that I did it. It was so catch as catch can. I mean, I did always have a place for a desk and my books, but, you know, I was rarely at it or if I was at it, you know, it was fleeting <laughs> um, and somebody was about to walk in on me always, you know, that myth that you should, you know, you know, your kids are going to take a nap and you're going to have this time, forget it, you know, that it just doesn't happen. Um, I do remember at a certain point that like on Sundays, I would like make a point of going to a cafe 
for a couple of hours in the morning. Like that was kind of an arrangement that my husband and I had. Um, that was, I think, when Ita was very small. Um, and then, <laughs> and then when Charlie came along, everything, you know, all hell broke loose. <laughs> but I did, um, I did keep going away you know, not every year, but I, I did keep applying for like conferences and like short residencies, um, which it's interesting now, now that, you know, I'm sort of facing my daughter is in 11th grade and she's going to college soon. And so I'm like, I don't want to go away. I want every moment, you know? Um, but when, when they were little, little, I, you know, it was really important to me to sort of have that you know, I'd go away for 10 days maybe. And I was very fortunate that my folks, my parents um, live close enough by that they would often take the kids for that time. Or, you know, my husband um, is now a kindergarten teacher early on in our kids' lives. He was a carpenter, but he's now, he went back and did his early ed degree. And so he's off in the summers with them as well. So we've been able to arrange that. And that was important for me. Um, I don't know, just again, like seeing myself in the world in a different context um, and to keep seeing it. Um, but, you know, the other thing that was important for me um, is was it was establishing not just time, but like establishing a project. So those self portraits were very important because they kind of kept kept me going along. Um, and I think um I, th I do think though that I, you know, I had to let go a lot. Um, we don't support parents in this culture. You know, we just, we don't give them time, money you know, to accommodate this like huge job that parents do. Um, and so, you know, when I look at my CV, if I'm applying for something, um, I, recently rearranged all of my publications chronologically. I'd had them alphabetically for some reason and I did them chronologically. And, you know, I can just, I see the years of my kids' births, you know, and I see the years when like things were tricky in our household, you know, and like, that's when, that's when my workload, mm -hmm. you know, was too much for me and I couldn't, I couldn't publish, I couldn't produce, yeah. um, you know, and, that's frustrating because it doesn't have to be that way, right? I mean, we're the wealthiest country in the world. Like, why? Why do we? Why? Why don't we support families? Um, yeah. I mean, I particularly feel it because um, because I my mom is from Dublin, and I've I've spent you know a lot of time um, growing up, and and since as an adult, bringing my own kids back to Ireland, and um, you know that when when uh, when we were kids, when I was a child going over to Ireland, it was just this incredibly poor country. It was at war and, um, you know, many, many people were unemployed and, you know, it, it was difficult there. Um, but since the 1950s, they've had a child allowance, like money that the government pays families to help them raise their kids, you know, so that like the pressure to like take every little like extra job <laughs> and every little bit of time is not quite so pressing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so that's a truth that is, 
I think it's in the book too. Um, if I look at it now, I can see, you know, the places where, um, the, where I had time to really delve into things and the places where I didn't, um, just in terms of my own experience, you know, yeah. in poetry, um, sort of ironically, like <laughs> when I was, um, when, when I kind of felt like we went back to childhood during COVID, like suddenly everybody was in the house on top of each other <laughs> all the time. And um, yeah, my husband gave me such a romantic birthday gift that year. He 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 um, installed a lock on my study door. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, so I was able to like sometimes just be like, nope, you can't just mm-hmm. open the door and walk in. <laughs> Um, yeah, but it, it, it's, it's hard. I I wish I had a, so I wish I had wisdom, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, I was talking to a writer I work with and, you know, my day job and he's just about, they're just about to have their fourth child. And, um, you know, I was asking him something about reading or he was like, Oh, I just feel so guilty. I feel so guilty. I don't have time. I'm too tired. And I was like, you are allowed to be tired right now. You are allowed to not read and not write. Like, don't, don't feel guilty about not doing those things right now. You'll get it back. You'll, you know, poetry will wait for you. Writing will wait for you. And, um, this is, this is part of a writer's life is not writing is having time for whatever reason, like right now, I I have felt so resistant to submitting work. I just don't want to. Um, yeah. I have found, and you know what? That is okay. It is okay. There's enough going on, and the fact that we have to think about hustle culture and mm-hmm. you know productivity while we're digesting like global tragedy and violent like ah, yeah. you're okay. Like you know. Maybe just getting to the doctors this morning was your poem. Maybe that was everything you needed to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I wanted to read um a Ruckheiser poem because of because of your book Flutter Kick and how much you deal with the news in it. Okay. You probably know what poem I'm gonna read. Um, I lived in the first century of world wars. Oh, yeah. I lived in the first century of world wars. Most mornings, I would be more or less insane. The newspapers would arrive with their careless stories. The news would pour out of various devices, interrupted by attempts to sell products to the unseen. I would call my friends on other devices. They would be more or less mad for similar reasons. Slowly, I would get to pen and paper, make my poems for others unseen and unborn. In the day I would be reminded of those men and women, brave, setting up signals across vast distances, considering a nameless way of living, of almost unimagined values. As the lights darkened, as the lights of night brightened, we would try to imagine them, try to find each other, to construct peace, to make love, to reconcile, waking with sleeping, ourselves with each other, ourselves with ourselves. 
we would try by any means to reach the limits of ourselves, to reach beyond ourselves, to let go the means, to wake. I lived in the first century of these wars. Mm. And just how wildly relevant this poem is. Um, I remember when it started really circling Mm -hmm. um, during the early days of the Trump administration and during um, that inauguration, may it live in infamy, um, Mm. that like we all felt just crazy. And um, yeah, I say that as someone diagnosed with mental illness, <laughs> like, but yeah, you know, like, I'm like, well, okay, I do feel crazy right now. Um, yeah. That you just feel gaslit by society constantly. Um, and in a, I wrestle with like the fact that our daily life requires so much energy. And if you're someone dealing with chronic pain or disability or mental illness, like, it is enough just to get through the day. And then it's like, here's, here's this burden. Like, here's the news. Here's, you know, my children in the morning asking me to explain Gaza, explain, you know, like things that you're absolutely like you need to do. And also it feels like I'm totally unqualified, you know, to be my children's (laughs) only news source. Um, But we grew up with like the news always on like television or my dad would put it on while he put on his boots or, um, and we don't, we don't watch news like that in my house. Like that's not, it's not the same thing anymore. Like, right. You, you go to the news if you want it. Um, it's not just Mm -hmm. on the television beaming into your home, which would be awful. Yeah. But thinking about your speaker and your book, um, and having to mediate, the news while caregiving right like it's this mm. duality it's this tension and mm-hmm. and I, it really puts me in mind with rachel zucker's work too oh. um your work and and how she like mediates those things mm-hmm. um and they're kind of like special difficulties mm-hmm. um yeah i mean well sorry did i interrupt no, no. that no, go right ahead um yeah, I mean, we're, we're, I guess we're like an N- NPR household in that, like, it, that, that radio is on, you know, mm-hmm. in the morning all the time. And I, <laughs> I just flashed as you were talking, um, this memory of, um, you know, I often have, have it on in the car and um, driving, driving Ita to school, like in kindergarten and, um Syria, there was a, the war in Syria had kind of Mm. begun. Um, and they were talking about it. I think this was the BBC and yeah, like, like you said, I was trying to be like, okay, what do I know? Like, you know, I want to give an accurate rendering of this conflict to my (laughs) five-year-old in a way that she can understand it. Um, and we were talking about what war is and how it can happen and why, and, um, Fortunately, the drive's only about 15 minutes. So, you know, I didn't quite run out of things, <laughs> answers for her. Mm-hmm. And and then, um, you know, several months later, we were again driving to school. And again, the BBC is on. And again, Syria comes on. And Ita saying, wait, mom, are they still having a war in Syria? Mm-hmm. It's not over yet. Like, and um 
you know, and then, and then the conversation was about, you know, how, how long wars last and Mm -hmm. how, and, and the repercussions and, Mm -hmm. um, but, but so much of, of parenting for me is, um, so much of the gift of it is having that like new lens and that outrage, like, wait, these grownups haven't figured it out yet. Like, how are they still doing this? Like, clearly they know it's bad. How is it still happening? Um, and, you know, it's true. Like, how is it still happening? How yeah. are we still going going through these conflicts, repeating them over and over again? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so um, I think that that mediation, as difficult as it is, um, is also really important to me as a, a person, you know, that I've had to like rethink all my assumptions mm-hmm. um, that I am, you know, constantly, I hope anyway, you know, questioning. And if I'm not questioning, one of my kids is questioning and forcing me to question, you know, yeah. forcing, forcing me not to be so jaded. Um which it's it's just very easy to become jaded mm, in, mm-hmm. in our society, um, and I fact as somebody who came of age in the '90s too, that was like you were meant to be jaded, you know, if you weren't. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, then yeah, you were really I don't know, very uncool. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that that's not the mode now. Although no. I fear with all of these conflicts that you know that's that's what we'll go back to. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that um, one thing that's been really important to me um, as a, as a parent is not, is being as honest as I can be with my kids, you know, um, and really trying to answer the questions. And so that's maybe part of, um, part of what I'm trying also to do in these poems um, is, you know, if I have to be honest with them, I also have to be honest with myself about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what I'm, what I'm thinking about, what, what, you know, what these reports are bringing up in me. Um, and so the, the report poems, many of which kind of have voices from the news in them mm-hmm. um, and gave, gave life to other poems in the book. I get at that like kind of responsibility to like look back at the world and and see yeah. it and, you know yeah this came up um at the panel I was on at the CD Wright conference which is where you and I met in person for the first time mm-hmm. um and we'd known each other on Twitter in that <laughs> in that <Yes>. sphere <laughs> I refuse to call it by its new name um <laughs> same um, yeah, it came up definitely. that, you know, the idea of reports and reportage and, um, you know, there's this, uh, I've heard a poet say, a very well-known Pulitzer Prize winning poet say, um, transcription is not a poem, like it has to be transformed. Mm. Um, and I think because I was raised to be a girl and a woman, um. I have a different view of transcription and I, it's such a creative act. Um, lists making is a creative act, you know, ships, ledgers, and, you know, um, 
Oh, what do they call the list of like items on a ship? Um, it's like a word for it. But no, no, it's not correct. No, uh, manifest. Manifest. Thank you. Yes, yeah. what a good word. Yes, <laughs> thank you. It's exactly the word that never happens when someone knows the word you want. <laughs> it's like no, not that one, but that one. <laughs> manifest. Yeah, and it's um, a noun and a verb. Like yeah, yeah a twofer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um. And that, I think, to to make a record of your days is a creative mm-hmm. act. Like journaling, which is often deemed like a very feminized form of writing, and you know mm-hmm. all of these, all of these different genres of nonfiction, which really what I think for me as a nonfiction writer and someone who's very attached to, um, I don't know if the idea of nonfiction, um, but in that same interview co-interview you did with nicole callahan in the critical flame where you you brought up the unverifiable facts and the documentary fact from ruckheiser which mm-hmm. you know touchstone ruckheiser for this episode um yeah but the unverified fact is being like dreams and what were the other examples um dreams and desires totally blanking but i think a lot of it was dreams yeah and desires um, and sexuality and like things yeah. that you could that could not be verified as opposed to something right. that could be documented um mm-hmm. and that there are those two kinds of poetries but that they're entwined in her work and um i think that's so important and also the kind of holiness she has around the act of slowly i would get to pen and paper mm-hmm. um making my poems for others unseen and unborn and that the kind of message in a bottle poem, the poem is the thing you cast away and someone else finds it like that, that really matters. And, and I love the slowly I would get to pen and paper. Like we don't have to worry about how quick we are to get there and we can be slow and take the time we need and have grace with ourselves and our schedules. And, Mm -hmm. um, and also that she's making it for those, unseen and unborn and um which then is echoed in the reaching out at the end of the poem yeah yeah I mean I think that um like the idea of uh you know that what what was it that you can't just document you have to transform I mean that that's sort of um it it assumes that there's one version, like mm, one correct yeah. set of facts and experiences, right? That could be documented mm-hmm. and not transformed. Um, but of course, you know, that's not true. Like we're all seeing things through our own experience and our own set of eyes. And and we'll, you know, we'll notice something mm-hmm. different than the person who's sitting next to us. Um, yeah. You know, if you know, if my daughter hadn't piped up from the vaccine and said, they're still at war in Syria, I would have, you know, I would have listened to that news re- account totally differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, that set of facts, you yeah. know? Uh, so, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a little, it, it, I think that we're always like it or not better or worse, you know, we're, we're choosing what we, what we understand and see and engage with. Yeah. 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 That's and then true. what we dream and what we, you know, how, how it, how the, how that outer, how those facts so-called sort of come into us and yeah. are transformed in our own being. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
I was working with a writing student yesterday and I said to them, they were like, well, can I change this detail? They were working on like a college essay application. Can I change this detail? And um, and I was trying to explain to them that the truth was important, but facts were not. And you could tell <laughs> that their whole world was about to slide out from under them. And they look so askance at me. And, you know, for, for poets, that's common parley, right? Like we're like, oh yeah, you know, facts don't hugely matter. It's, it's the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. This poor but student, I was like, oh, I'm making everything way too relative for them. <laughs> Relativism. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a hard thing to grasp. Right. But, um, but Morgan I think Parker has that like, you know, Facts were invented by white people, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> facts are invented by everybody who engages with them. Like they, we reinvent them every time we encounter them and use them and bring them into our work again. You know, yeah. um, and what is what is fact? Like, I would. I just read the other day. This is a little bit of a tangent, but also I think it's amazing. Um, reading about. Um, the syndrome, what is it when someone is um, Stockholm syndrome, mm-hmm. that it was invented by, it was, it was defined and created by a male psychiatrist mm. about a woman he had never met who, oh. when the tr- police tried to pull her out of a situation she was terrified of the police Mm -hmm. and was trying to get away from them Mm -hmm. and the context that being stockholm syndrome the context of like being afraid of the police is like oh wow that changes everything um (laughs) and just knowing like how we get fact how we get then we get something and we apply it to other people um Mm -hmm. taking it from you know a situation of like many different like an amalgamation of fact and circumstance and story and narrative and like all these things it's like a maelstrom um Mm. and then that's what we teach in textbooks you know so so it's just wild it's all coming all comes out i was thinking about that today because i was listening again npr as as i drove home from my yoga class and um they were uh, talking about the importance of media literacy because kids are getting, you know, all this information off the internet and, um, you know, making them check their sources. And I was thinking, and here I am, somebody who writes books, and I was thinking, well, why are, why are we assuming that because something is published in a book, it's a more reputable <laughs> version mm. of events? Like when I look back at the history textbooks I learned from, you know, they're rife with misinformation or, mm. I don't know, misappropriated facts or you know, smoothed over versions of, of history that, you know, glorify some people and demonize others. And, you know, like, why, why is it that um, suddenly the internet is going to change that or, or is, 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 you know, is the problem. I mean, I also think that, you know, I try to avoid my children getting all of their news from YouTubers. So there's that the other side, right? Um, But, but you know, but yeah, I mean, it. I, I think one of the things that um, that I love about that Rukeyser poem is the looking towards the future and looking towards, you know, you know, I am here, 
like establishing I lived in this century, but knowing even by saying that, that like people in another century are going to read this poem and look back on those wars differently. Yes. Right. Um, You know, and have a whole different connection to what, you know, what war is, who, who perpetrates it, you know, um, and, and what it means to, what the importance of writing it down is also. Um, Yeah. I just, I think, you know, raising the youngest generation right now, I think I love seeing through their eyes. Um, They are done with things in a way that my generation, well, and I was a weird, I was a weird alcove of my generation because I was homeschooled and Mm -hmm. um, super like fundamental religious, like, and so I had a very isolated upbringing um, Mm -hmm. and a very like prescribed set of values. And with our children, they don't have that. Mm -hmm. Um, Hooray. (laughs) Well, back when we, we went to church um, before COVID, now I just don't go to large unmasked spaces but um like once a pastor came up to my child and said peace of christ and my child folded their hands and said namaste (laughs) 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 well you understood the spirit um (laughs) that's excellent i love it more important than (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i you know they are done like my children will tell someone if something's homophobic or transphobic or racist like they have no they're like hey that christopher columbus video you showed in school is racist like what right. and, and i it's just they have a different way of looking at the world like a level of articulateness and explicitness and understanding identity and more um mm-hmm. not that that's something you like lock down but it makes me really hopeful but i you know also having children who are really depressed about the climate is hard um yeah and yeah violence like what is a book of poems right now without a a poem about gun violence like what is like thinking about that as I read your book thinking about gendered violence in America um you know thinking about some of the solace and some of the energy that art can give us to keep functioning and um like I love that you close your book with a beautiful ecrastic poem. In fact, do you would you like to read that poem as our close? And sure. could you also delight us by reading your note either before or after? Um, because I think your note is just beautiful and I just love a good note section. In fact, (laughs) if I turn to the back of someone's book and it doesn't have notes, I, I will like gasp. I'm like, (gasps) you made this all by yourself. That's impossible. (laughs) The notes were very important to me in this book. Um, I don't have a note section in my first book. Um, but this book, you know, I, I drew from a lot of sources and I love those sources and I wanted to have them there you know, for myself too. So I could look back and be like, okay, I can look that up. You know, um, I, 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 for, I had the great fortune of um, getting to hear Claudia Rankin speak quite a bit after Citizen came out because I was teaching at the time at Emerson College and she was a, a, a artist in residence there. And she talked about 
how important it was for her to have like verifiable fact in her books, like not, okay. So we've just been talking about how fact is constructed, but like, but the things that like people could look up. So her, her poetic essay about um, Sabrina Williams, um, because she wanted, you know, the personal to also sort of connect to the larger world. And and that was what I really wanted Hmm. in, in my book. Yeah. I mean, that is so powerful. That is so, I was, I was thinking too about um, Robin Costs Lewis's Voyage of the Sable Venus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love that. Because it's like the ways we can travel through art, even when we're in one space. And like in that book, it's the speaker in front of their computer with their baby. And they're like looking at art online and being able to create archive and like move through the world digitally, even when you're like homebound or when you're illness bound or whatever. Right. Um, and I find that really powerful. I think particularly coming from like a woman queer lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes. Right. Would- yeah. Cause there's, I mean, there's so many places in the world where we're told we shouldn't go. Right. And I think art does allow us to go places, you know, even if, even if it's imagined or through a screen yeah. or whatever, but it does allow us to mm-hmm. go into places where we've felt excluded or felt, yeah. you know, felt we weren't allowed to be I I would love it if Virginia Woolf could be less relevant to us now but unfortunately (laughs) a room of one's own and being like prohibited from the library space like all Mm. of this is still so relevant Um, yep yeah I know it's shocking um shocking how relevant it is still yeah 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 I I mean I I remember um I just actually, I just did an, a, another interview um, and I referenced this. I remember reading Adrian Rich talk about how um, when she had her children, it was a revolutionizing experience. And I remember reading that when my kids were really young and thinking like, yes, absolutely. And then thinking like, wait, why does it still have to be that way? <laughs> you know, Because yeah. I mean, she meant it in a way of like, she became just enraged at what she <laughs> yeah. suddenly saw vividly before her as her, you know, <laughs> the structures, the institutions of the world. And um, I had exactly that. I still have yeah. exactly that same response. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, art brings us forward, but it also sort of reminds us of like uh, you know, what what mm-hmm. what these like sort of I don't know seemingly immovable mm-hmm. structures are. You know, I think it's um, C.S. Lewis who I don't adore. <laughs> I like his fiction. I don't like his apologetics, and I don't like that um, he's like one of the only intellectuals that fundamental Christians will like accept. Um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, there's other people. Um, but he has this thing where he says, like, the only solution to the problems, our contemporary problems are to read old books. And there's something about, like, the way others have been dealing with these same issues for thousands of years. Like, when you get into texts and you're like, oh, wow, like, we didn't invent the wheel in terms of warfare right. or, you know, racism and immigration or you know like right this right. stuff is so old um and you can be supported like and this is something they talk about in like ctpt cptsd healing is that 
there's a community of people, but you also have a community of books. And that is also how your healing happens. And I think that is really powerful, especially for a lot of us homebody slash hermit slash introverts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I find not to be too woo woo about it, but I mean, I find writing to be healing. I mean, there are poems in this book in which I, you know, I wrote down things that really terrified me and writing them made it, I, I don't know if they didn't make me feel better about the experiences themselves, but it made those experiences more legible to me in a way that I could then sort of say, okay, like I have it now. <laughs> like I'm, I get to hold it now. It's not something that's just going to come upon me. Um, I'm, I'm holding it and, you know, kind of grappling with it, but, but at least, at least it's within my grasp. Um, and I, that's something that writing has always done for me yeah. is, you know, letting me do that, letting me take a hold of the things that are hard yeah. in my life. Absolutely. And then also in the world. Yes. May we hear your, your final poem? Sure, sure. Um, do you want me to tell you? Well, I'll read the notes. Um, so I came, I was out in Montana um, and I came across this wonderful artist book. I wish I, can I put my hand on it quickly here? I should have prepared. No, I don't have it right at hand. Um, by the artist Shelley Julian Bundy. Um, and it's a book of portraits of North Dakotan women. Um women who were sort of emblematic of the women of her childhood. And um, every woman in the book is identified by a little kind of sentence or two caption um, that identifies her by her closest male relative. Um, and that immediately caught my attention <laughs> um, as somebody who was writing about, you know, gender and um selfhood you know and who gets to name you and who doesn't that was another thing that I uh, we didn't talk about earlier but in that that poem almost a mothering um I'm, I'm named for Anna Karenina which is you know something that I kind of struggled with when I was a child <laughs> um and get back to Shelley Julian Bundy um and so I was totally transfixed by this artist book and I went through all of them and I mean the captions are kind of witty and tongue-in-cheek but then there's also this like grief at the center of them because you know sh she's doing this thing of trying to bring forward women who were erased and then I got to the end of the book and I read the little caption that said that all of them were invented they weren't actual women they were sort of based on the women of her childhood and that added another layer mm -hmm. a bit to me um that she had to like kind of go back and capture them again um you know in her own way um so one time is the first one that i wrote um and the note says, it's written in response to Shelley Julian Bundy's painting, This is Mrs. Lawrence Schlegel from outside of Hettinger, North Dakota. She left for good one time, but came back. Nobody ever asked about it. And that's, a, in fact, the first um, portrait in, in the book. And, um, you know, I read that she left for good one time, but came back. And I thought, oh, I've done that. <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I couldn't resist, you know? Um, 
So, so this is one time. She left for good one time, but came back. She let her hair grow long and the grays come in. Nobody ever asked about it, but she left for good one time. She followed the fence line out, the grass dry and rust tipped where it chased her calves. She was wearing the wrong shoes and no socks either, but she'd left and it was for good. Two does started from their beds under a choke cherry. They cleared the top wire of the fence almost before she'd seen them and kept moving into the trees by the ditch. She was going and she was gone. Mosquitoes tracking her shoulder blades, wringing her ankles. She kept the fence line to her left and the creek to her right as she left for good, for better or worse. The dishes and whatever had been said at dinner, the whole damn dinner. She was leaving. She was and was and was. The smell of her falling under sagebrush. No wind yet and the sun not down. You'll take what God gives you, they said, as her children wriggled beside her and the last bite on her plate gave her the fish eye. But she'd left for good and the creek agreed, flashing the last acre until it slid under the single barbed strand that marked the neighbor's land and someone else called someone else in to supper. It would be bedtime soon, the night hawks buzzing the trees for insects, their chicks lodged among river stones below. It had been for good when she left, all of it she knew, and also that someone would need a last drink of water now and a song from when you were little. Someone would need to touch her hair, to pat it softly until sleep came this time and for good. Yes, thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you. Reminds me of like running away mm. when you were little too, mm-hmm. um, which I don't, you know, it's one of those things you say and then you're like, is that a, that's a universal experience, right? Everyone tries to run away when they're little. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I just wrote a poem recently about my kids running away. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mine have definitely put things in a bandana and gone down to the park wherever they live. <laughs> yeah. I think that's as far as they got, but but they went behind the garage so I couldn't see them that was... oh my goodness that's amazing you yeah. don't perceive me <laughs> yeah I'm not here you can't see me <laughs> they left for good yeah one time and came back and then they came back because <laughs> they'd eaten all the snacks <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing I don't have safe spaces you come back to mm-hmm. Very Anna, important, important. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, it's an amazing time talking with you today. And we will have your book, um, Flutter Kick, linked in the show notes. So I hope our, our readers hurry up and get their copies. Oh, well, thank you so much. This is really a pleasure. It was really wonderful to talk to you. And thank you for reading my book and having so many interesting oh, things to say about you. it. Wonderful <laughs> to meet you. And also shout out to CD Write Conference for bringing writers together. Yeah, everybody should come to the CD Right Women Writers Conference. It's a wonderful, wonderful So speech. good. So intimate, so non-hierarchical, so smart, yeah. so warm. Mm-hmm. Were you at the panel that devolved into hugging at the end? That was pretty you great. You missed that one. I was so <laughs> mad. But then everybody was coming out and they all hugged me as they were That's coming amazing. out. That's amazing. 
yeah. I, I remember they were going to do a writing prompt and I really need a drink of water. So I hopped out to get a drink of water and I wasn't sure I'd be able to write. When I came back in, everyone was hugging. They were like, we just turned into a hug fest instead. Do you want to hug? I was like, okay. So it was amazing. It was really good. Definitely recommend CD Write Conference. Yeah. Yeah. It was wonderful. 